it's easier to point the finger at men than it is the system because we can talk to a man, you know, like (laughs) we can argue with a man. (laughs) Right, yeah. But it's it's really not their fault. Like they were born and raised in the same system that we were in. They drank the same water. They breathed the same air. And I 100% agree with you though that the system hurts everyone, but it also benefits men more. So they're less likely to Mm. see that the system also hurts them. Welcome back to Experable. I'm your host, Krati Mehra. And in this show, we learn from the success and struggles of people we admire and dive deep into concepts that help us expand the possibilities available to us so we can freely, boldly design the life we desire, discover the depth and breadth of our capabilities, access the wisdom available in the world around us, and even on really bad days, love what we see in the mirror. Are you ready? Let's go. Welcome back to Experable. You're about to hear my conversation with Andrea Oven, and we talk about how to process emotions like shame and anger, how the good girl narrative continues to impact the choices women make, using social media as an outlet for sensitive emotions, the sense of helplessness that permeates our life, and what we can do to feel more empowered. Andrea Oven is an author, global keynote speaker, and professional certified life coach. She helps high-achieving women develop unshakable confidence and master resilience. Andrea's podcast, Make Some Noise, has close to 4 million downloads. Our guest, apart from being a certified life coach, is also a certified Daring Way facilitator, a modality based on Dr. Brene Brown's research. This was an amazing conversation with a human dynamo, and I bet you're gonna love Andrea's sense of humor, her candor, and her generosity with all of her learnings and her experience. So let's dive in. Thank you so much once again for being here. I wanted to know the sheer amount of content that you've shared with people to help them is it's amazing. So, but out of all of those lessons, out of all of those learnings and out of all of those tips and advice and guidance that you've shared, which one has been the most outstanding lesson that has sort of dominated or shaped your life the most that you may or may not have shared in your books? So I can't distill it down to one, so I will quickly go through three of them. Okay. And um, the first one is is knowing what your values are. And I'm a true believer that – People who many times are unhappy or they feel stuck and they can't make a decision, they aren't looking at what their values are. And just to very quickly kind of whip through it for people who maybe have never thought about it is to ask yourself the question, what's important to me and what's important about the way that I live my life? And start that's you know the starting point. The second one is being kind to yourself. I know it sounds a little cliche in this industry if you spend any time in these parts, but it's having self-compassion and giving yourself a break as we live in a culture that is so, you know, push, 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 do more, do more, keep yeah. going, keep going, like pick yourself up quickly. Having compassion for yourself when you are stuck or you have failed or, you know, many of the various things that are challenging in life, it's imperative. And then the last thing I think especially for, you know, my audience is primarily women is learning how to listen to your gut and your intuition. And that's like when I'm coaching clients one-on-one, oftentimes the question I ask them when they're feeling stuck is, what is your gut telling you? And I would say eight times out of 10, they can tell me pretty quickly Mm-hmm. But they are second guessing themselves and and you know aren't sure if what they're feeling is right. And so those are the kind of the my top three. Okay. I love that. Thank you. Uh okay. Uh you know, women are changing a lot, but do you think the good girl narrative is still hijacking women's lives and still obstructing their growth? Like it is still is it still a dominant part of society? Yeah, 100%. I I had a woman on my podcast and I interviewed her because she's an expert on negotiating for women. And she's um, probably in her 50s. And I asked her, uh, do you think the problem – and negotiating is just like kind of one aspect of what you call the, like the good girl syndrome of of women who tend to not negotiate a salary when they're coming into a new job or even asking for a promotion or a raise or, or whatever it is. And I asked her, do you think that this is more of a um, a problem with the older generations, like the baby boomers, I'm a Gen Xer, do you think millennials and Gen Z sort of have a better handle on it? And she said, not really. I just think that they got the memo sooner than we did. 
which I found interesting. So I, I think it's um I think it's we're still in that phase where the conversation is just starting to happen. And we're but it's like that discomfort phase of, oh, okay, like we see what we need to do, but it's actually learning and implementing the action that is that we're all still kind of struggling with. Like I still struggle with it sometimes, like having hard conversations, setting boundaries, uh, realizing that I've been people pleasing or been codependent. So I, that was sort of a long way of, of saying, um, I still, we've come a long way, but we still have a lot of work to do. I agree with that. Uh, but the strange thing that I noticed, like with the Gen Z especially, is that <laughs> these women are, seem to be very angry. I don't know if it's just the women who are very prominent on social media and that's just mm-hmm. the narrative that they've picked up or that's just like what they've attached their persona to. I don't know. But they seem to be very angry and they seem to be angry at mostly men. And I mm-hmm. I, I feel like, yeah, there are still women who are being actively being repressed, but the systems and the cultures that are doing that are just as detrimental to men. Like, Right sure. away, when you think about cultures like that, that actively, like actively pull push down women, they're they're very toxic cultures, and we kind of know that they do the same to men as well. At least men mm-hmm. who who refuse to toe the line. So I feel like, but everywhere else, women have the opportunity. Women have the platform. It's no longer men holding you back. It's if you are being held back, then there's something that's that you are not doing. I mean, you could have a toxic man or a or someone abusive in your life, but then. You also have resources to kind of get out of that situation. I know it's never that cut and dried, but I also know that at the end of the day, for most women, it's in your hands. Would you agree with that? Let me start where you where you started and like being angry. Yeah, they are, and I think that it's a it's a kind of side effect of their mothers and grandmothers. Mm. You know, my mom was born in 1942, which was, <laughs> seems like a million years ago. Um, and, you know, and like, <laughs> I wasn't even born in, in the 1960s where we saw that feminist wave. Oh, yes. And so now I think what's what we're seeing happen is social media, you know, younger millennials and Gen Z only know social media. And it's this really amazing platform f- so that they can voice their opinions and and say what's on their mind and it's it stems from the women who have come before them talking freely about like what is actually going on so i think the anger is righteous um i also mm-hmm. think that it can be toxic if it's not channeled in a very specific way there are some amazing women out there and leaders and men as well i don't want to leave them out of the conversation yeah. who are doing things to dismantle these systems of oppression for not just women but for people of color for um lgbtq community yeah. poor people Etc. Cetera, Etc. Cetera. And I think that there are a few cases where it gets to the point where, yes, there are open doors for women, and they're not taking it. I mean, this goes for anyone, and they're not taking advantage of it because for yeah. whatever reason. Yeah. But I still think largely it's the system that needs to be dismantled. And and by the system, I'm talking about like patriarchy and misogyny as a whole. And then you start talking about, um, you know, the police systems or college, like just, it's a never ending conversation. But I think that we are nowhere near the point where we can point a finger at any specific gender or any specific community. Mm-hmm, I mm-hmm. still think we are definitely in a place of the problem is the system. And I also just want to say one last thing, like, it's easier to point the finger at men than it is the system because I think as humans, we feel like it's easier because like we can talk to a man, you know, like <laughs> we can argue with a man. Right, yeah. But it's, it's really not their fault. Like yeah. they were born and raised in the same system that we were in. They drank the same water. They breathed the same air. And I 100% agree with you though that the system hurts everyone. Um, But it also benefits men more. So they're less likely to Mm. see that the system also hurts them. Okay. Okay. I respect your opinion. I think uh, in my capacity as a volunteer, I spent like a huge amount of my time around women from underserved communities. I actively worked with them. And these women, I mean, the first time I met this group of women, they were applying for bank loans for their business. And I was like, are you serious? I thought they were they were there with someone because they were wearing their like in in very ethnic clothing, like old fashioned ethnic clothing. Uh, so they were Rajasthani mm-hmm. women, and if you ever Google how Rajasthani women dress, they were dressed exactly what a Google image would show you. They had like these massive 
chunky jewelry on their arms. I was like, are you, what? They're up, they were obviously not educated. They were older. Like they were right. women Because it's probably all they 50s. know. Yeah, mm-hmm. exactly. So they were like, we don't, we're not going to change who we are, but we want this right. bank loan. So tell us how the conversation goes. Educate us on that. We're going to go dress like this. So that's not yep. going to change. But we want to be able to hold our own in this conversation. I've met athletes who come from uh, circumstances that you look at and think, how did this person even have the balls to dream of going into the Olympics? <laughs> and like, look at look at where they're coming from. This is amazing. Their dreams are bigger yeah. than my dreams have ever been. And I come from, like, my life has always been very comfortable. So when I do have these conversations with you, I really respect the way you put it. Uh, and I understand I, I can appreciate your perspective on it. So I always feel like I'm very, I feel kind of entitled, but at the same time, I do believe what I'm saying. So mm-hmm. for the benefit of my listeners, I think you are right in, to a certain extent, but I think just for the benefit of the women listening, if you are in that place, it's it always helps to look at other perspectives as, by, you know, after putting your anger aside because mm-hmm. of that whole conditioning and the narrative that has been playing for so long men are very like a very good good chunky target but yeah yeah, there's so much more going on here and if you are attaching your destiny to that narrative then that's just hurting you because for most of us we've got options even for those underprivileged women they had options they they found out about it and they're Mm -hmm. running like these amazing businesses selling soaps and selling jewelries on an international level they're amazing women so Mm -hmm. this is something i've noticed uh, and i would say this even though i don't consider women to be superior to men i would never say that but at the same time i do believe because of all the years of repression when a woman really recognizes just how powerful she is when she gets that spark Mm -hmm the transformation is way more impactful and way more powerful than like it is for men. They just, they're, they become unstoppable. It's like a force. Yeah. Yeah. It's like magic. It really is. But I mean, in, in your, to your argument, you're always going to find people who don't take advantage or, or, you know, squander the, the resources that they've been given. And there's actually, and I can't remember where I heard it. It might've been the the podcast series seen on radio, um, S C E N E. On radio, um, and they were talking about a study that was done uh, for a marginalized community of people who were given scholarships to college. Regardless, I can't even remember what it was. Okay, okay. But what they found is that a lot of them didn't finish, mm-hmm. and it's okay. it. They were and they studied it, and it they were mm-hmm. looking at you know epigenetics and things like that. So there are other factors mm-hmm. involved than people just not wanting it bad enough right. or, or, you know, their lack of education and things like that. So I think it goes yeah. beyond just the conversation of, of that. Yeah. Yeah. No, I agree with you. I am always very like, there's a voice in my head. That's like, you're, you're so privileged. Shut up. So Stay am I. <laughs> but at the same time, I want this conversation to happen. I want women to talk about it respectfully, calmly. Let's consider each other's perspective. And you are someone who has like so much more experience in this field. So that's one of the reasons why I brought it up, not to create like a conflict. And I love and respect the, the perspective you've put forward. I just want us to really start considering all of the perspectives at play here so that we can really grow. I appreciate that. Yeah, yeah I appreciate that. Are you were your parents immigrants? No, no, no. I'm in India. I I always been in India. Oh, you are. I thought you were in the states. No, oh, okay. No, no. This is one of the benefits like I work so much with Americans and English. I did uh, my masters in Britain. So, I get to see how the US culture works. Sometimes uh, it feels like I know more about the US culture than I do about my own culture, which is something that I've been yeah. correcting for the past two years. Uh, but also I get to see my own country. And there is like, there are times when I think we- Indian women are starting to sort of, they are becoming more empowered than uh, American women. I'm, I'm sorry if that's, I'm not trying to like, again, create a conflict. No, not at all. You would know that more than I would. <laughs> I, I don't know why that is though, because I, I always sometimes I feel concerned because America has a lot of influence as one of the most powerful countries in the world. It has so Mm -hmm. much influence. And in my country, maybe it's a colonial mentality. I don't know, but we do tend to imitate the West. And I do see the American culture. Again, we're not going to go down this path, but I see them getting caught up in all of these narratives that are created by social media, by certain people to create controversy. And I worry about it because... 
it really <laughs> bothers me when I see people with raw talent and them channeling that talent into these areas where they're being manipulated or they're being maneuvered into saying certain things or doing certain things. That bugs me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And I, and I, it used to bug me a lot too. And, and I think I just got exhausted by it and maybe got yeah. to a certain age where I'm like, it's not, it's not my business. <laughs> yeah. This is something I love about you because I've seen you talk about some of the most touchy subjects and you've done it with a lot of grace. Uh, that's something I have yet to learn because I get very emotional uh, I'm careful about what I say sometimes, but sometimes really not. <laughs> so I do that. too sometimes. Like it's not it's not perfect, but it it also comes with a lot of experience. Yeah. <laughs> okay. On on that subject, uh, I also want to know: we are socially conditioned to do certain things, and mm-hmm. it's not easy to fight that conditioning. So, uh, taking that into account, what advice would you give to women how they can recognize when they're walking paths that somebody else is dictating? And how, how can they find the power to, like, first of all, identify what it is that they really want, and then to actually find the courage to go down that path? Yeah, this is a, this is a tricky one. And I think it happens more often than we know. Also, yeah. I think that for some women, it's not safe for them to either change paths or go yeah. in a direction that they think is the right one for them because yeah. they are economically reliant um, on someone else. So I just wanted to to make sure I, I mentioned that because to right. be able to choose your own path is is absolutely a privilege, or change paths is also a privilege. Yeah. So. I would just first want to acknowledge how difficult it is. You know, I was just talking to a client the other day. It was a new client and she'd been, she's my age in her late forties and had been in a career that her parents encouraged her to go in when she was in college and and now Mm -hmm. is absolutely miserable and has been miserable for a long time and feels like it's too late to change paths. And when she was talking about this other career path, she was, she lit up. And I, I think that Again, acknowledging that this could be, this is probably one of the very hardest things that you'll ever do. And also, I call it the point of no return. When you're, when you're in that place where you realize how unhappy you are and moving backwards feels impossible to, to go back and be happy where you're at, but also to take the steps to move forward also feels impossible. So it's like both outcomes feel terrible and are equally as scary. So I always tell people to take care of yourself when you're in that place because there's grief involved, there's terror involved. We seek the counsel of so many people. And I always tell people like, I'm really good at what I do and you might have a really good therapist or a fantastic mentor Mm -hmm. and none of us can make the decision for you. We can just hopefully be a soft place to land. And it really, you know, I don't know if I have anything else to say except that when that person is ready, they will go. And I also will never tell you that the net will appear. Sometimes it doesn't. And you have to understand that resilience is going to be the thing that I can guarantee that you will gain. It might not be success in this new path. It it might not be success in this new career or whatever it is. But I assure you that what you can count on is gaining more resilience on the other end. And um, yeah, that's one of those topics where I found it is totally up to the person and they will jump when they are ready. And it might take them 10 years. It might take them a day. Again, it's not up to us to decide. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. I agree with you. but as you're going through this process, do uh-huh. you believe that we can walk both paths? Because sometimes I do see women who are going through those transformations. They have to go to one extreme and then mm-hmm. figure out a balance. So they, they go from being this very good girl to being this like badass who's just like burning bridges left, right, and center and not worrying so much. And then like finding an equilibrium. I I want you, your opinion on it because... Is that okay to do or is there a better way to go about these things? I think it, a lot of that comes down to personality. You know, mm-hmm. it, it, I've seen people do it very differently. I was kind of what you described, someone who just started cutting people out left and right. But I also had a situation where I had a very dramatic thing happen in my life 
that's not the case for anyone. So for some people, it's more of a slow burn where they maybe they listen to podcasts like yours and they read a few self-help books and they're starting to realize their patterns. So it's more of a slow process. Or if it's like me where you hit your absolute, you know, quintessential rock bottom and then you decide to burn the whole thing down like I did. I don't think one way is better than the other. I just the question that I like to ask people when they feel like they might be in that place, you know, if this is helpful for people listening, I wrote about it in my third book in the very beginning. I asked the question, what is your conditioning versus what is your truth? And so if you find yourself in a place where, for instance, a boss gives you yet another project that you do not have the time to take on, yeah. and then they they say, like, can you can you handle this for us? You're such a team player. Can you handle this for us? Your conditioning very well might be to say, yes, absolutely, yeah. I can take yeah. that on. Happy to. But your truth is that you cannot – you are headed for burnout. It's incredibly unfair. It's not in your job description. Yeah. And so – Again, you reach that point of like, wait, I have a decision to make. And I wanted to kind of distill it down into something a little bit more granular for people to think about if they're in that place of wanting to make some changes. Yeah, I love that. And uh, I I read your book and I that one hit me so hard, conditioning versus truth, because it like a, I think a tug of war that sort of happens internally. Mm-hmm. I don't think that ever stops happening. Because I am a pretty confident, strong person, but I deal with it constantly, constantly. It comes up. It happens a lot in relationships, friendships, romantic relationships, work. Work, yeah. Mm -hmm. For me, it's mostly work. Like I would think about doing something really big and then I would be like, oh, that's too dramatic. That's not necessary. But then I would wonder, is that like the the loner Krati who doesn't like attention asking me to play, like stay on the sidelines? So (laughs) it constantly happens. And yeah, I think your your conditioning. Yes, that's that's just Mm -hmm. who I've been. And I think Mm -hmm. I'm still very much a loner. But that's like just one aspect of me. I think women often forget that you can be a lot of things. You don't have to pick one persona. There are passages in your books that make people realize that even as you are waking up to your power, you are allowed to be fearful. You're allowed to be no matter at whatever stage you are at in your transformation journey, you're allowed to like have those moments where it's like, oh my God, I'm back to square one. You're not. You're just... You're going to get there. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. You just took a couple steps back. Yeah. But here's where shame comes in. Like for a lot of women, Mm -hmm. as they're making this transformation, they believe that it's done. We're done. We shouldn't be lapsing back into old habits. But, and that's not just, that's not the only way shame shows up. But I know that that is how people uh, recognize it as. So I want to talk about shame, how it shows up. And like, what are behaviors that are typical of having a lot of internal shame? Yeah. Okay. When we think about shame, a lot of times we think about these these huge shaming moments that we've had in our lives. So maybe it was like our parents used shame to discipline us and kind of keep us in line. Or maybe you come from a very religious background where shame was used as a tool to control. Or we did something in a relationship where we're just so ashamed. I know a lot of people when they they talk about sex or even money, it brings up feelings of shame. And so when I talk, yes, those are all very valid and they happen to all of us. When I talk about shame with my community, I talk about it like this. This was so I'm um, certified in Dr. Brene Brown's work since 2014, it's been almost 10 years, and this was one of the aha moments I had going through the training, and which prompted me to write my second book. And anytime you are engaging in perfectionism, where you are afraid to put some your art out because you're worried about it not being perfect, if you are engaging in people-pleasing and poor boundary setting at work or in a romantic relationship, if you are overachieving to the extent where it is just driving you to burn out, but it's the only way you know how to feel accepted, 99.9% of the time, I never want to say 100% of the time, we are doing those things in an effort to avoid shame. So we are avoiding... um, talking about sex because we're we feel ashamed about it. We're avoiding setting boundaries because we're worried people are going to not like us or reject us. We're avoiding putting our art out into the world because we're afraid we're going to be judged about it or it's a failure if we try to sell it to an art museum or something. So 
the problem is, is that, and many times we don't realize this, like shame is running our life, whether we know it or not. By avoiding all of these things, we are doing so in an effort to avoid shame. And that's how I, so that's the entry point that I talk about it. And a lot of people are like, oh my God, <laughs> I am doing all those things to avoid shame. And so, so I'm going to, I said a lot, I'm going to stop there and like, let you kind of, which direction do you want to go? I recognize those behaviors in like my clients as well and in mm-hmm. myself as well. So you're very, yeah, right. we all do it. But I don't understand, like we struggle with just recognizing the shame. The, sh- the talking about shame itself is such a hard conversation because the first thing yeah. anyone would say if you bring this up is like no no I'm never ashamed I'm never I've never done anything to be ashamed I'm like that's not what is being discussed here but it's happening and it's subtle and or it's insidious and you just don't realize it you know it's so, all of those things that you just said yeah. and I well this too because I we even have a we don't have a word that we are comfortable saying when we are even mm-hmm. telling a story which might seem innocuous to us so so many times I've heard stories whether it's even just in a casual group setting or one-on-one privately with a client and they're telling me a story and they say you know such and such happened and I was so embarrassed and I ask them, like, were yeah. you embarrassed or were you ashamed? So we sort of kind of toe the line. And sometimes the thing with, you know, we talk, in this work, we talk a lot about the differences between shame, guilt, humiliation, and embarrassment. And I love Brene Brown, but sometimes when she explains it, she makes it seem like there are hard and fast lines between each of those four experiences (laughs) and feelings, and they are not. We sort of bounce back in between, especially I've seen like with embarrassment and shame. So for instance, I was at a a talk with a, a very popular podcaster, and I went by myself, and I didn't know anyone, and it was a pretty big crowd, and he asked the crowd to like, what are some topics you want me to talk about? And I shouted one out and I'm very loud. And it was at a moment where nobody else was talking and it was super loud. (laughs) And a lot of people, it like startled some people and like they kind of turned around to look at me. And because I was by myself and even the speaker like looked over at me like, whoa, settle down lady. Like he had that kind of look on his face. And so it's a funny story. And I was And at first, it was shame, like that immediate kind of like hot feeling. I even get a little bit warm like telling the story. And then it did go into embarrassment because I can tell the story now and it's funny and people, you know, can relate and things like that. But that's an example of of something, a story where we kind of can bounce back and forth between the two. And yes, it's insidious. It's one of those things where it happens fairly regularly to people Mm -hmm. and many times like we know what it feels like and we know it when we see it in other people and in ourselves, but we can't describe it. And that's how it's insidious. But how do we navigate it without feeling like Mm -hmm. a, like like a bull in a China shop? How do we navigate this? Because again, it's like people swing between extremes and Mm -hmm. then they have the the vulnerability hangover where they've like overcorrected and they're like, Oh, I'm just going to go say this thing and I'm going to be this person. And then there's just like, Oh my God, that was way too much. And then they just completely shrink. So how do we navigate that? I just did that last week. Um, well, we are a bull in a China shop. We do it very messy. (laughs) Like I guarantee you that that is how it's going to look. You are going to knock things over. You are going to feel stupid. You are going to possibly hurt people's feelings and have to circle back. Like thus is life. Like we are all going through this China shop, <laughs> you know. With oh, so um, one of the things, like if I can give people another tool, is it's my favorite module in the curriculum that I facilitate, and it's called your triggers and um, ideal identities. So if you break down, like just for sake of time in this conversation, let's talk about. Um, our persona, our work persona, more specifically how we show up to these kinds of interviews. So you, Katya, have a ideal identity of how you want to show up as a, as a host. I don't like to speak for you, but for sake of time, I'm going to just kind of give a persona. So I'm assuming that you want to show up as a podcast host, as professional, articulate, um, you know, well-researched with your guest, wise, experienced, seasoned, like all of these things. You don't want to be perceived by other people, um, by your listeners as um, unprofessional, you know, kind of the opposite of what I just said, right? Right. And so inevitably, 
you're going to make a mistake. And maybe you've totally got the schedule wrong or the time zone wrong, mm-hmm. or maybe your assistant, yeah. you know, got the time zone yeah. wrong and you space on a recording. And then you have to come to me and apologize. And you could, because you don't have any control of how I perceive you or how your audience perceive you, your mind very well could go to that place of, oh my God, Andrea Owen thinks I'm unprofessional, that I don't know what I'm doing. Yeah. And that elicits shame. So my point is that the the exercise involves you breaking down the different areas of your life and listing out your ideal and unwanted identities. So this is the the way you would love to be perceived by other people and the way you would never want to be perceived by other people. And what ends up happening for most people who don't know this work is that when they inevitably fall into one of those unwanted identities, instead of having compassion for yourself, and also sharing your story when appropriate to someone who Brene Brown says, who's earned the right to hear your story. And hopefully you are met with empathy because those are the antidotes, self-compassion and empathy. Instead of doing that, we try harder to get to our ideal identities. So we bend over backwards. And this is where people-pleasing and perfectionism are born. So to use that same example, if you um, totally forgot our our appointment and missed it, maybe you would, you know, I, I'm so sorry, Andrea, let me buy 25 of your books and give them away to my audience. Like, well, you don't need to do that. Like, yeah. <laughs> but, that, but it's like you're trying yeah. to yeah. people please or, or brown yeah. nose. And we do this all the time. Yeah. So that's, that's kind of a very quick way of an hour long module that I take people through um, to, to figure out what your shame triggers are. Yeah, a must-do module, I think, because this is a constant, constant struggle. Just like for the benefit of my listeners, I will share this. Recently did happen with me. One of my guests was irresponsive. Like we didn't get any response or three, four emails. So I was like, okay, this person's not going to show up, I think. And Mm -hmm. so my uh, assistant canceled it and she told me, oh, don't bother. I don't think she's coming, so it's fine. But she did show up. And it turns out she was going through a treatment which just made me feel so much worse. So my assistant sent this very, like, very basic apology. But then I owned up to it. I wrote an email. It was apologetic. I owned up to the mess that I'd made. And I let her know, like, in very blunt terms, I meant you no disrespect. Please know that. I appreciate and love your work. And if you don't want to come back, I'll understand. Uh, thank you for your consideration and your time. But uh, And let me know if there's anything else I can do for you. But she was very, she was amazing. And she's like, no, no, yeah. no, I'll come back. No worries. <laughs> so It happens. Yeah. It ha- well, so the difference is, I want to point out the difference. So yeah. you handled it well and, and in a healthy way. So what, what I'm talking about is that if you, when you realize that you have um, wasted this person's time, even though it was an honest mistake, that if you fall into that self-talk of, oh my God, I'm so stupid. What have I done? She yeah. probably thinks I'm an idiot. That's shame talking to you. And so those are the things I want people to think about. Like when you fall into one of those unwanted identities or you make a mistake, let's make it more basic, what is your self-talk like? That's a way to recognize if you're falling into shame. Yeah, you're bang on with that. Because even though like as a coach, I also like touch upon this with my clients. So I kind of, and I've read your books and I've read Brené Brown's book. We're constantly studying this subject, but even so, we know it was a genuine mistake, but at the same time, that bubble does pop up. It's like, oh, you messed up again. You messed up again. You've been doing this for so So I get it. Like, thank you for it still, pointing It still happens out. to me sometimes. Yeah. The difference is, and I want to just point out this one quick last thing. People who have been doing this law, this work as long as I have and as long as you have consistently, the difference is not that we don't have those thoughts pop up. The difference is that we catch them very quickly and we see them within sometimes seconds, if not minutes, so that we can course correct and choose another way of thinking or behaving or and, or believing about ourselves. Like That's the difference and that's the goal that I hope that people understand is the correct one. It's not that you yeah. don't ever have the thoughts anymore. Absolutely. Absolutely correct. And again, this brings up like the point that you already made. Show yourself some grace. I think something we forget to do. Uh, And shame is one thing, one emotion that we struggle with. Another one is anger. I feel like women Mm -hmm. still 
and even men like nobody really has a healthy relationship with anger they don't they're either not allowing themselves to be angry at all like i know a lot of the older indian generation here what happens is anytime you get angry like your anger is completely right and justified the reaction is you need to calm down why are you getting so angry you're going to cause a fight you're mm. going to cause a scene and i'm like are you serious this deserves a scene right now so why yeah. is that such an issue and what can we do to change that it's i think it's kind of complex you know and it depends on the gender it depends on the culture um but to kind of go backwards and what you were just saying is i think that for for women to see angry men that very well may signal danger and or yeah. upcoming violence. Yeah. So I can understand yeah. why there are, and, I'm, I, and I don't mean to stereotype, but I think it's valid for women to be yeah. worried and afraid if they see anger in men that they're around. That being said, I, I, in psychology, many people think or say that anger is actually hurt that is being channeled through anger. So a lot of times when we are angry, if you can think like what what is really going on? Like what hurt you or who hurt you? That we can pinpoint what it is that we are actually hurt by and it's channeling through as anger. And you know, I, and I also feel like for men, like patriarchy has created a belief system that anger is the only acceptable emotion for them. And so that's what they've accepted and, and, and that's what we see a lot of times, which I think is incredibly sad. Like all humans have a multitude of feelings that many times we don't even know what they are or how to name them. You know, speaking of Brene Brown, like that's why I love her book, Alice of the Heart, because it gives you almost like a glossary of all of these different feelings and, and what they actually look like and many times what they stem from. And for women, I think, again, culturally, anger is the – I mean, they have done studies on this. And the bottom line of it, and this is not a scientific thing to say, but people don't like angry women. <laughs> people so tend true. to not like angry women. So true. Especially yeah. rage. And there's some really great books out there. They're on the opposite side of the room right now. Um, Eloquent Rage is one of them. And I cannot read the name of the, the, the woman that wrote it. And if I have to give advice around it, I invite people, if they have the resources to do so, is to dig into it with a therapist, someplace yeah. where you feel is safe. And just start thinking about like, what is your relationship to anger? What did you see growing up that has shaped the way you feel about anger in general and anger in women? Start there. You know, that question of like, what is your conditioning versus what is your truth? I, I think I'm a bit of a minority uh, because anger has always been an emotion that's very easy to access for me. I don't know if it's because I'm an Aries. <laughs> I don't know. Um, but it, it's just one of those things. Uh, but I also have, have had repercussions for it. And there are consequences because angry women are deemed as difficult and we don't play by the yeah. rules. So kind of went off on a tangent, but I forget. Did you have a specific question about it that I may not have answered? No, this was amazing because you've just given me perspectives that I'd honestly not considered. So this, like, I really appreciate that because I'm going to have so much more patience next time I'm talking to someone and they're like trying to tell me something like, calm down or, oh, no, no, I can't get angry. Like, I have older clients also. And these are women mostly who are not focusing on business, but on relationships. And they're very resistant to this idea that they have the right to express their anger. So what you said actually has given me a very, very something that must be considered that perhaps anger to them signals danger. Mm -hmm. I, yeah, I, I've, I've never considered that. So thank you for pointing it might, that out. It might signal, yeah, I'm, I'm my pleasure. It might signal danger and also that a boundary has been crossed somewhere in their life that they're, yeah. that they're angry about. So I see that a lot with women. Yeah, because I always had this perspective that anger is like an information point. It is what tells you mm -hmm. something's not right here and something needs to be resolved and fixed. So, but yeah, I, I get that. And yes, absolutely. Angry women are <laughs> demonized. <laughs> so. Yeah, there's a book behind me that, that's titled um, In Defense of Difficult Women. And yes, it's a theme <laughs> in my life. Yes. Now on that note, like processing emotions, we talked about shame, we talked about anger. I know 
like in this day and age now social media is so much a part of our life that a lot of people process their emotions on social media so uh i have seen maybe it's cuz i'm just such an intensely private person but i'm always very taken aback when i see someone crying on social media I, i'm not judging that at all i have no opinions around it cuz i'm just very taken aback on the one hand i admire it because that has to mean you're so comfortable but does that is that what it means cuz that's something that fascinates me be. is it healthy is it do we can we even have an opinion on this? I, I'm not sure, but I wanted to ask you. Yeah, it's a that's a really great question. I don't know if I've ever discussed this with anyone uh, publicly, but I, I, I it could be that they're that comfortable crying in front of on the internet. It also could be that they are very uncomfortable showing their emotions in front of people that they have an emotional attachment to. So it mm. feels a lot easier to do it in front of their phone and post it to the internet and kind of walk away or see what happens to it. I think at the end of the day, all of us are craving sometimes with desperation to be seen and heard. And not just be seen and heard, but more specifically seen and heard in our pain. And it is incredibly intimate to be that connected to someone else. And I always kind of half joke that you know, in my 20s and even into my 30s, the thing that I wanted more than anything in the world was connection, to be seen and heard, to trust someone else yeah. with reckless abandon. And um, and that, because it's intimate, it's that intimacy with another human. And it was also precisely the things that I was deeply terrified of. So I was constantly in this push-pull with people of like, kind of like, go away, but come here. <laughs> thing and it does not <laughs> let me tell you everyone listening yeah. it it it's a, it becomes a mess and i'm still at almost 48 years old like going through the process of really learning how to trust people like i saw something on tiktok that said name three men that you implicitly trust and i was like it was zero like oh my <laughs> even my husband like he, he knows yeah. um so it's just it's it's an interesting it's an in, and i mean like intimately like i always say like trusting someone i look at trust is like true trust is not that someone can like hold your heart in their hands is that they can have it in their teeth and you trust them with it like that to me is like the ultimate trusting someone yeah. and um it it's yeah, the social media again. Just to circle back what I just said, like I, th- I think it's it's a it could be a combination of that they are so willing to do that with everyone. But my guess is that a lot of them don't feel comfortable doing it with the people around them and asking for help in that way. But it feels safer for some way. It's mm-hmm. getting their needs met of being seen. I think is what it, my short answer is. Okay, that makes a lot of sense. But would you advise them, this is um, like to the younger generation, especially like young girls, if they're listening, to process it in the privacy of their own mind first before they do that? Could there be any pitfalls to it that may just be dangerous to their mental health? Yeah, I mean, people on the internet can be terrible. We've known this yeah. since the beginning of the yeah. internet when there was, Absolutely. you know, dial up and there was uh, um, AOL chat rooms. <laughs> people oh can God. be terrible. Do you remember and those? And so ever? I think yeah. that <laughs> I remember those. I think that it's a matter of you know, it's it no one is really taught how to be a good friend. I didn't learn this until I was in my late 30s and I'm still making mistakes yeah. in learning how to like truly show up yeah. for the women in my life and and be the kind of person that that they need to be and also everyone's different. Everyone's unique in exactly how they want to be supported. Mm-hmm. And so I think to to have these conversations and understand what it means to be a true friend is very rare, especially when you're a teenager yeah. or in your twenties. Like I don't, I don't know anyone who is really like that. And so, I think that if if that is your entry point, I my advice is to tread lightly. I always say like start with a trusted school counselor or mentor mm. or teacher, or if you have a parent that you really trust or a grandparent. Um, before you go on the internet, because also the internet is forever yeah. and yeah. you never know like how it's going to end up. Like look at, um, 
Chris, who the the guy that used to be now has transitioned to a woman named Kara, who you know leave Britney alone. Like remember that from the mid two thousands was crying on the internet about Britney Spears, and like that lived on as a meme forever. You know him expressing wow. his emotions back then. Okay. So I think it. I don't know if I really answered the question. I guess the you bottom did. line is it's a, it's a maybe, maybe. Yeah, it depends. Well, I I know I know that um like there there can't be a black and white answer all the time, especially because if someone doesn't have anyone, well, that if social media is all they have, you you wouldn't want to take that away from them. But I I respect your answer, and I think it makes a lot of sense. Like go to someone you trust before you venture out into the social media i worry about this generation a lot because they are growing up with social media so completely a part of their life it especially when i like started thinking about becoming a mother myself this is something i think about a lot like oh my god this generation is just not very safe it is a i was just telling somebody it is a trip to raise Generation Z. I have a 13-year-old and a 15-year-old. And so my oldest was born in 2007, the year that the smartphone came out. And so my generation, Generation X, we are the first generation to raise children who are completely (laughs) have grown up during at least the internet, like a lot of us that will not know a life before the smartphone and social media. And so it's, none of us really know what we're doing. We're all scrambling to follow parenting experts and there, there are no long-term studies yet that are going to show the effects of how, how things are. But you know what? Like I, I do have hope that they said the same thing about my generation and television and MTV, you know, and like, we're mostly okay. (laughs) Like we're a little messed up. But like, it's, it's okay. It'll, it'll all kind of even out in the end. So that's my hope that that will be okay. Yeah. <laughs> we'll be yeah. Okay. Parenting. I can't think of a time when parenting will not be the hardest job ever. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It was just, it's always been kind of different issues, but this one is very unique. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. A lot of people are resistant to the word power. What's up with that? Like, why is power has such a visceral reaction to it all the time? And if you were to use like a different word for it, what would that word be? Oh, that's a good question. I don't know if I've ever been asked that. Uh, You know, this is why I love other languages, you know, especially like the Spanish language where there are multiple words for what Americans or English only has one word for. Maybe power is one of those. But I, I think because we are used to a capitalistic culture where mm. we are a democracy. <laughs> However, what we see a lot with people in leadership, um, many times in our in our U.S. government, and is that it's it's power over versus power with. And uh, you know, power over looks like um, you know I don't even need to explain it. Like you can think of people yeah. in history who have have, and it's not necessarily that they're even you know dictators. They could be just people in leadership who yeah. create this this culture, if you will, of power over where power with, and I'm sure you can think of leaders who have led the way where it is um, empowering people to use their own um, momentum, to use their own skills and leadership and become better leaders themselves to yeah. create more of a collective of, of empowerment, I guess is the only word I can yeah. think of that's that I would like to use instead of power. Yeah, that's pretty cool because I don't think as an individual, like especially people who come from privilege, I don't think we ever really stop to consider just how helpless we actually feel. Like it's such an unrecognized mm-hmm. emotion just because we have resources. We we often don't think about because thanks to our government, <laughs> thanks to the marketing industry, we, we have such little of actual real power. So yeah, right. thank you for again, bringing You're up that welcome. perspective. My last question. So if you could take away one emotion entirely from the human experience like no one would ever feel this one emotion ever again which one would that be which which emotion would that be oh god probably anxiety Uh, okay (laughs) (laughs) which is different from fear and worry and like nervousness like all of those I think need to exist because they prevent us from making bad decisions or you know things like that but anxiety is I think unnecessary especially people who have clinical anxiety like myself I know so many people that do where it's just unnecessary it doesn't help at all it doesn't prevent us from doing things that are harmful it's just completely unnecessary yeah. Okay. Um, but I have to say, like, I don't, uh, I often ask people, do you regret 
anything from your life? Like, would you ever take away something that you were driven to do in your past life? For you, I always, I, I should ask you, I shouldn't assume. So would you? Yeah, you know, so I go back and forth with that. It depends on the day if how I answer that. But I, I think, um, you know, I wouldn't be where I am today, that whole thing. You know, it's like, yeah. I wouldn't be where I am today yeah. if I had if I had made any different decisions. But the one thing, maybe like more PG-13, um, I would have had sex with a lot more people. Like, honestly, <laughs> like that's that. safely. Safely. Of course, of course. But like I've been a serial monogamist for so long and also, you know, I went very quickly from relationship to relationship and it comes from, and I think this might be helpful, it comes from that compulsive heteronormative, like that the prize and the way I would be most valued in the world Uh is if someone picked me. Like if I am, like my worthiness is directly, I believe that my worthiness was directly related to if I am in a relationship or not. And I think that, you know, if that's what you want to be and that's what makes you happy, great. And it does in some regard. But I do feel like looking back, you know, and if I have to give like my children advice, especially my daughter, who's only 13, not ready yet, but it's like have fun and that includes having lots of sex with lots of different people safely and learn, like just be – I wish that I would have grown up in a more sex positive environment. And yes. that didn't change for me until I had children and I wanted it to be different for them. And then this whole world opened up where I was like, oh, look at what I missed out <laughs> on. So that's, that's, I think, the only regret that I have. I love that. And I think this was <laughs> amazing because I think you've uh, demonstrated what you've taught in this episode with that one answer. I love that. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. This was so but Sometimes we crazy. have regrets. Yeah. 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 Uh-huh. Sometimes, yeah, regrets. I mean – you were right what you said like it depends on the day of the week <laughs> yeah it depends yeah. and it depends on how much time i have <laughs> <laughs> yes that was amazing you are awesome and this episode was exactly what i thought it would be like jam packed with so much learning and so much wisdom well what do you know we've reached the end of this episode thank you so much for joining me today for supporting the podcast and for sharing your time with me If you enjoyed this episode, consider subscribing to the show on whatever podcast platform you love. You can also watch the video version of the interviews and most of the solo episodes on my YouTube channel. Link is in the episode description. Now, if you've made it this far, you must love the content at least a little bit, or maybe you just like hanging out with me, or there was something in this particular episode that resonated with you. Or maybe it's all of those things. I would love to know. So if you've got a minute, it will be great if you can drop a review on Apple Podcasts or you can send me your thoughts on the show via email. Now, if you want content that goes deeper than even the podcast does with a lot of real life stories, one-on-one interactions, or just become part of my tribe, subscribe to my weekly newsletter. The link is in the episode description. Once again, thank you so, so much for sharing your time with me. Take care and I will be back soon with the next episode. Thank you.